Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Today on Family Matters, we will be talking about love, marriage, history, and politics. Uh, how families and societies interact and interconnect with each other and influence each other. I'm Virginia Collin, and I'm very happy to introduce my guest, historian Stephanie Kuntz. Stephanie has written seven books on marriage and family life, and I'll let her decide which one she wants to most emphasize as we're talking or as we go along. Maybe we'll mention two or three of them. Um, And she also is the Director of Research and Public Education at the Council on Contemporary Families. So welcome to the show, Stephanie. Well, thank you very much. It's really great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. I don't know much about this uh, Council on Contemporary, Contemporary Families. What's that like? Well, it's an it's a, um, organization that was formed about 10 or 15 years ago by researchers and practitioners from several different fields who were getting frustrated about the fact that the press was quoting all of these ideological think tanks who didn't have real family researchers or experienced practitioners on their, um, you know, on their boards. And we were thinking, gosh, isn't, there, you know, it's, isn't it important to get the press some, and public some accurate information about how families are changing? So um, we feel passionate about that. We volunteer our time on top of our other busy jobs to get briefing papers out and fact sheets about what's happening. So it's a very good resource uh, for everything. And recently we, talked to, we had a, a briefing paper on whether the gender revolution was stalled and another one on uh, what's happening. We've got one coming out uh, next week on multiracial dating and how that's going. So it's a very good resource. It's just www.contemporaryfamilies.org. Okay, that's really good to know, and I plan to look into that further. <laughs> Great. So... Um, Where I first came across your work was in a book group. We all, at the suggestion of a professor, decided to read Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage, which, as you know, of course, you wrote. (laughs) I found it intriguing the first time I read it and recently got a copy and started to reread it. And I thought, I'll just skim a little here and there to remind myself of the main ideas. And I couldn't do it. It was so intriguing. I reread the entire book. Wow, that's flattering. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I can certainly recommend this book to my listeners. And um, gosh, where to start? We have... Marriage has, family life has changed so much in the last century, and it changed a lot in the two or three centuries before that. And prior to that, uh, there was a lot of similarity for thousands of years about what marriages look like and how they work. So where should we begin? 
Well, there was similarity in how they functioned. There was actually tremendous diversity in marriage forms uh, through the ages. I mean, uh, people talk about how the traditional marriage was one man, uh, one woman, but in fact, the most culturally preferred marriage through the ages was one man, several women. There's also countries where uh, there's one woman and several men. Uh, Ghost marriages, where in order to make an alliance with a family, if you're a child has died, you st- or, or their child has died. You marry uh, the live child to the, the to, it's called marrying a tablet to the ghost of the other child. So there's tremendous variety in the expectations of marriage and the forms. But I think that you're right that for thousands of years there were two things that all marriages had in common. One was that marriage was a political and economic institution. It was not about love. In some societies, uh, love was thought of as something that could only really occur outside marriage since marriage was mostly a monetary arrangement. Other societies said, yes, you should learn to love after marriage, but love was always and you know, an extra kind of the gravy. It wasn't the essential, uh, and it was not about love, and it was not about free choice. People didn't get free choice about who to marry. So that was one theme of marriages through the ages. Uh, the other was it was a form of domination of men over women, and uh, those two things were just absolutely. Uh, part of traditional marriage for thousands and thousands of years. And what we now think of as traditional marriage, that young people get to court each other and they get to marry for love, that was very recent, uh, historically speaking. It really only started to become respectable at the end of the 18th century. And the idea that men and women should be equal and should be uh, have equal rights, well, that's even newer. That didn't We didn't even start experimenting with that until about 40 years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, okay. It's fun to go back and, and look at... Um, I mean, people ask me why was marriage invented? You know, was it to protect women, to oppress women? And actually, you know, it's so funny when we think about all the in-law jokes that we have today, but marriage was basically invented to get in-laws. It was about making alliances with other families, and that's why love was subordinate and young people's choice was subordinate. So we're engaged in a massive social experiment uh, by changing those traditional parts of marriage. (laughs) I see. Yeah, I remember reading the book. I was struck with how um, the description of, say, how marriages and how society was structured in Athens, in Greece, in a time when democracy was invented, uh, was so similar to what marriage looked like and how society was structured in China when Confucius was describing how it works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In both cases, um, democracy uh, in Athens for men, uh, (laughs) and free men at that, and in the Confucian philosophy, philosophy, you know, that's in favor of men as well. The Confucian... um, Confucius uh, enjoins all sorts of reason upon men, but for women it enjoins the rule of the three obediences, that, in chi- that as a child you obey your father, as a wife you obey your uh, husband, and as a mother, you, as a, a widow, you obey your son. <laughs> and are there places in the world today where this is still the custom? 
Well, yes. Um, as you know, um, the the whole idea that men uh, rule over their wives is, has been very widespread. It um, lasted, you know, even in the West, and we think of ourselves as the people who pioneered individual rights. Right up until the early 20th century, the law of coverture ruled, and that was the idea that um, when a man and woman married, uh, they became one, and that one <laughs> was basically the husband, that he represented the family to the outside world. In fact, the, the law said that a, a man could not even grant freedom to his wife because that would presuppose her independent existence. And, of course, as we know, there are many societies in which uh, you still have this kind of male uh, dominance enshrined in law not just uh, a habit that's carried over. But there, you know, there's, there's been a lot of changes in women's roles, and all around the world this is being challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to jump too quickly to the enormous changes that have happened in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to skip over everything that happened in the Middle Ages and... Right. You know, the 1700s and so forth. So shall we try to keep a little bit of historical order here? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love uh, talking about the history because it's so foreign to people. I mean, for example, just you go back and people have these great ideals of the love stories of the past, like Anthony and Cleopatra is one of my favorite examples. This was so not a love story. These were the rulers or the contenders, uh, actually, uh, for to rule the two most powerful empires in the world. Cleopatra had already gone to war with her brother in order to uh, win, and of course, uh, Mark Anthony had gone to war with Caesar. And before that, uh, Aunt Cleopatra hooked up with Caesar, ended up having a son supposedly by him. Now that may be a little. Um, Tricky, actually, because he never had a child by any other of his, uh, by his legal wife or by any other person. But they both had an interest, of course, in saying that this child uh, was sired by Caesar and um, birthed by, uh, by uh, Cleopatra because that gave the child a claim both to Rome and to Egypt, and it gave them a sense of alliance. And then when mm-hmm. Caesar was killed, um, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony made the same sort of deal. Uh, so when you actually look at this, this is not a love story at all. And so many of these ancient um, uh, battles over marriage were really not about love, not even about infidelity. They were about power, uh, and they were about claims to thrones. Um, and, you know, when you get into the, the, the lower classes, too, they also married for uh, instrumental reasons. If you were uh, a farmer, you, you didn't want to marry somebody who had land uh, in another village. Uh, you certainly didn't want the women of your village to move away and take their land uh, or their dowry with them. Uh, and if you were a baker or a small entrepreneur, you know, a small businessman, you couldn't run a business by yourself. Your spouse was your most important employee, so you ba- bakers married other bakers. Um, they, uh, if they fell in love with somebody else, they conveniently suppressed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I remember reading... Um, 
that marriage had a lot to do with economics and with politics and with for the for rich people it had mm-hmm. to do with alliances and inheritances would you like to say more about that well yes um it was in in the absence of of our current market systems and banks that fund people you can take out a loan uh, a state system where uh, you, know, it, you you elect people to uh, office um, marriage and family alliances were the main way that people contended uh, for power and raised money if you were in the very upper classes uh, you married off your daughter or your son to um, can strengthen your claim to uh, the throne or to make a military alliance or to sign a peace treaty. If you were in the middle classes, it was the main way that you raised money, which is why men uh, were often much more interested in the dowry than in the daughter. Uh, <laughs> uh, for, for You would get in the, the middle classes, you would get these rising middle classes who didn't have access to court connections, um, but they did have money that some of the nobility didn't have, and so you would have these kind of classic arrangements where uh, the you would marry your daughter off with a very substantial dowry to a noble who was in need of money because you were in need of his uh, court connections. Um, so there was a lot of maneuvering that went on uh, about marriages in, in those days. And even at, the, uh, even at the lowest levels of society, as I said, marriage was a very important work institution. It was the way that you organized your family farm or your labor force. And so uh, you're certainly not going to fire your most valuable employee because your eye has strayed to somebody else. Um, so this was a, a time of, and really, uh, it's just interesting to see, uh, you read these uh, arrangements where a father will uh, sign a marriage contract with another father and leave the name of the daughter or the son blank because he hasn't decided which one he's going to marry off. Um, of course, this was hard because young people have always you know, fallen in love and often even dreamed of marrying for love. But it's no accident that through most of history, the great love stories were tragedies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, did women have any kind of power through negotiation or manipulation or any way, any kind of power in these patriarchal societies with arranged marriages? Well, um, very limited, very limited. Um, In some societies, especially where the extended uh, clan were very, very strong, there was very little leeway that a woman had. In some of the most patriarchal societies, such as China, a woman's best bet was to, to... to give in and to get old enough so that when the daughter-in-law came into the house, you had the advantage of seniority and she could wait on you. But uh, your younger days were you had to give in to the, not only your husband but your husband's uh, parents. Um, there was, of course, there was maneuvering room, and there were some societies or groups within societies that granted women more independence, um, especially where women did inherit property. And you find people like um, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, really wheeling and dealing uh, with her marital alliances and her dalliances just as the men did. So it wasn't always, uh, they weren't always suppressed. But on the whole, um, 
men tended uh, at a certain point in history to have more of the military power and the, the land power, and they, uh, they subordinated their wives. And while we're still thinking about long ago and all around the world, to what extent were governments or religious institutions involved in directly regulating marriage? Well, it's very interesting. Originally, uh, marriages were a family affair. Um, that that was the private families that that made these marriages. And, but marriage was such an important political and economic institution that the ability to say this marriage is valid, this this marriage can be annulled or divorced, it became a tremendously important political and economic weapon. So states began to uh, contend with the private families over how, who should get the, the right to, met, to uh, decide on a marriage. And the Catholic Church, as it expanded its reach throughout Western Europe, uh, became very much involved in this uh, question because it was the, the aristocracy was continually trying to trespass on church lands. In fact, despite the clerical celibacy, many priests, and abbots married in the early days. And so if, um, if you were a noble family, the first thing you wanted to do was to marry off your daughter to this kind of lower-class priest uh, who, and get access to the church lands. And the church was, of course, very upset about that, and that's one reason they started to really enforce clerical celibacy. But they also found themselves... Uh, in constant conflict over who had the final political authority. And you got a very interesting uh, dynamic here where uh, the, the church said you can't divorce. I mean, they had lots of exceptions to it, though, because if you could prove that, or you could say that, that you had married someone who was your cousin, and in those days practically anybody could be proven to be your cousin at a certain point, uh, the church might uh, let you out of it because it prohibited incest. Um, so there would be these kind of situations where a man in particular would want to get out of a marriage because, for example, he hadn't had an heir, and the church wouldn't, w- or because he wanted to marry someone more advantageous make a military alliance with them. Well, the church didn't want him to uh, accumulate all that power, so they would say, no, you can't have this divorce. Um, And, of course, the man would uh, defy them. But other nobles who also didn't want that particular noble to gain uh, power would then come to the church's defense. So a lot of the things that we look at in history and we think, oh boy, people were really religious and they really respected the church, was part of this political and economic and military maneuvering. And it was just a a fascinating, fascinating period of history um, until you begin to get the emergence of secular states and uh, market systems that undercut this kind of a function of marriage. Okay, we're going to pause there and take a short break and everybody come back because Stephanie has so much more interesting stuff to tell you about marriage. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions. 
especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters, where we are talking about love, marriage, history, politics, families, and societies. I'm Virginia Collin. I'm talking with historian Stephanie Kuntz. And you can find her online at stephaniekuntz.com. That's C-O-O-N-T-Z for the spelling of the last name, stephaniekuntz.com. Or actually, you can just go to a bookstore and <laughs> look for her books there are plenty of them, and they're really good. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the connections and, and competition between governments and the Catholic Church to have some say in people's marriages. Marriage was not just a private family decision anymore if, if they could make it about something else. Let's say, where did that, when did that start? When did that transition begin to happen? Well, um, you got it, of course, uh, with the expansion of the Catholic Church. Uh, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, uh, the Catholic Church, which had been kind of part of that state system, was the only group that had the common language, um, the, uh, the access to the remnants of the Roman state, and the Catholic Church began to build itself up as an important political and economic power. But, of course, the local kings and... Um, and uh, princes uh, often 
sometimes allied themselves with it and put themselves under the protection of the church, sometimes fought with the church. Um, one of the most interesting things is to look at um, the evolution of Catholicism and then the development of Protestantism and their different attitudes toward marriage. Uh, sometimes it, it's very interesting. In some ways, the Catholic Church was one of the only religions in the world to actually um, give some leeway for people to have a love match because the Catholic Church took the position that if a uh, two, a couple claimed that they had exchanged words of consent in the present tense, um, not in the future tense, but in the present tense, that they were validly married and their parents could not force them to uh, marry someone else. Now, very few uh, couples ever really pushed it that far. But there have been cases, for example, in the 15th century, the Paston family uh, of England, the young woman fell in love with the bailiff on her father's manor, and they had the priest come in and talk to her and tell her that this was a terrible thing to do. She couldn't be married to him. Uh, he, she was beaten by her family. Uh, but, they, but they kept claiming that they had exchanged words of consent and kept appealing to the church, and the church finally had to go by its own ruling. Um, the, the church held that if you exchange these vows, uh, whether you were in church or not, whether you'd been blessed by a priest, that you could be validly married. So there was this little leeway that the Catholic Church gave that, that allowed people to, to defy their parents. Um, but what was interesting is that the Catholic Church, although it gave that leeway, it really was not originally very enthused about marriage. Um, this was uh, the 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 idea of Catholicism was that the most important thing uh, in the early Christian movement, which was a real um, radical movement and was going out to proselytize, the most important, the highest duty you could do would be to be celibate and to go out and to to spread the Christian movement. So when you look at um, at the attitudes of the early Catholic uh, fathers toward uh, marriage, you find that it's actually um, it's a lust or evil, as St. As, as Paul put it. It's better to marry than to burn with lust uh, and commit fornication. But it's even better to remain celibate and serve the Lord. Um, now, when Protestantism developed, they took quite a different approach. They were actually stricter about enforcing parental consent over marriage. But they also were much, they were much more... Um, argumentative that marriage should be the, the most sacred state, that it was more sacred than being a celibate virgin, and that that's why they wanted priests to marry. Uh, Luther said that everything in, in it, even rocks married, that that was the, the ideal state. And the result of the Protestant Reformation uh, and the Counter-Reformation was that the Catholics then elevated uh, marriage in much the same way. Uh, so it's really, it, wasn't, it actually wasn't until the, the 1215 that the Catholic Church made marriage a sacrament. Um, and they also allowed for this illicit love marriage in ways that the Protestants did not. 
So these were very interesting things uh, that, that happened and that changed. And, of course, most people know that in England, at least, Protestantism was uh, not a mass movement. It was something that happened because Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife and the Catholic Church, um, who was allied with, the, um, with Spain and uh, who had provided his wife, wouldn't allow him to do it. So he just said, well, forget it. <laughs> I'm going to establish my I'll, own church. I'll, just, <laughs> I'll start my own new state religion. That's right. <laughs> And by the way, we'll confiscate all those Catholic lands. And <laughs> yes, very big source of revenue. <laughs> right. Okay, so Protestant the Catholics actually didn't make sa- marriage a sacrament until twelve fifteen. I would not have guessed that. No, I know, and it's uh, something that that um, many people don't realize uh, about uh, the church history that it the whole I Jesus. Jesus took the position that he was the first to to say to forbid divorce, not just for women but for men. But he actually was more concerned with getting people to follow him than to marry. And you'll find many, many statements where he says, if you don't desert your family to follow me to go out to spread the word of the gospel, that's the, that's the most important thing that you can do. Now, as the church became more settled and more of an institution that faded somewhat. But that early Christian evangelical uh, push was actually to get people beyond the family. And as late as the 19th century, uh, Christian evangelists often talked about how important it was not to talk about the Christian family because that involved a small unit, but to talk about the Christian community. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the family values rhetoric that we hear is not actually in either the Catholic or the Protestant tradition. Okay. But the uh, patriarchal rule definitely is. <laughs> so things, we had, we had all this going on as the Middle Ages evolved, and eventually things started to change, maybe when we're getting close to the 1600s. What were the historical events that, that, made, that started to change marriages and families and politics and economics? And particularly in Western Europe. Western yes. Europe, although it did have the uh, clans, had a, it, it did not have the really intense extended family production systems that you found in, in Africa and the Middle East. And the result was that there was more independence for the individual unit. And at a very fairly early stage in the 16th and 17th century, you began to get a small uh, nuclear type families, they not, not often, you know, often more than just a nuclear family, but not an extended family complex, having their own farms and businesses. And as commerce developed and trade developed uh, and uh, the rule of law became more uh, and the succession became more predictable and not just based upon, you know, making these kinship alliances, uh, you got new ideas uh, and new practices that made it more possible for people to imagine marrying for love and giving young people free choice. The ideals of the Enlightenment said the older generation and the state should not dictate uh, to the young. Uh, the development of a market economy meant that if you 
were a young woman or man and you did want to get married, you could go out and find a job, development of wage labor. Uh, of course, the black death uh, contributed to this by weakening serfdom. Uh, the, you could go out and you could find uh, work somewhere else so you didn't have to wait for your family to give you a dowry or to let you inherit land uh, as you had in the past. And that meant that you could marry when you wanted, out of the traditional order, and, and who you wanted to a certain extent. And then on top of that, you got the great um, democratic revolutions of the rising middle class uh, with their idea that, uh, well, as the American Revolution put it, that the pursuit of happiness is a legitimate goal. All of these things contributed to a lessening of the old uh, rigid family hierarchies and allowed maneuvering room for individuals and raised the, the new and radical idea that young people should be allowed to choose their own mates and they should be allowed and even encouraged to choose them on the basis of love. Now, not there were a lot of cautions involved there, <laughs> you know, even then, but it was still a very new radical idea. And one of the things that really amused me when I was re- first researching the history of marriage is how horrified social conservatives of the day were by this radical new idea. They said, oh, my gosh, if you, if you tell people that marriage is about love, how are we going to get, you know, our kids married off to the right people that say, Eve, I don't love her, you know? How are you going to prevent people from saying that they have to have the right to divorce if love ends? Uh, how are you going to even prevent people from, how are you going to force people to get married if, if a woman gets pregnant and then decides that um, she doesn't want to marry this man just because, you know, maybe he took advantage of her and that it's, she's going to believe that it's more respectable to, uh, that it's less respectable to marry for mercenary reasons than it is to even have a child out of, out of wedlock. They were terrified and they predicted that disaster that love would, in fact, conquer marriage. And in the long run, they were partially right. It was a very destabilizing ideology. Um, but for 150 years, it was held in check by, uh, by the subordination of women, the, the legally, their lack of economic independence, the lack of the, the strong institutions, penalties for illegitimacy, and the lack of birth control, and also by a new ideology that developed hand-in-hand uh, hand with this, uh, a redefinition of love that was radically different than the past, and that I think we're still struggling with today um, because we still hold on to it, even though it's actually quite antithetical to some modern values. This sounds pretty important. What's the old definition of love and what's the new definition of love? Well, the old definition of love was that, um, you know, it was, it was highly sexualized and it was thought of as something that um, men and women equally fell into a very passionate, uh, and of course a lot of the passion was um, because it really didn't have to lead to marriage <laughs> and was, uh, it was seen as outside of marriage. But what was very interesting about the medieval ideals of love were that it was women were considered just as passionate as men, uh, in fact more prone to sexual error than men. Uh, and this new definition of love 
was based on the idea that men and women were opposites. The old ideals of men and women, men were ahead of women, yes, they were above women, but they weren't qualitatively different. A woman was a lesser man, but she was expected to do many of the same things that men did. Uh, she was expected to be good at business. She could help. Uh, she could wring a chicken's neck. She, would, she didn't uh, wait for the man to bring home the bacon. She helped slaughter the pig, and she made the bacon, and often she took it to market. And a man was expected to have qualities that we now think of as feminine. Men were the ones who organized social, en- uh, social engagements, celebrations, feasts, uh, did the kin-keeping because that was the important way that they made their contacts. Uh, men were expected to cry and be emotional. So what happens in the late 18th century and comes to dominate love for the next 150 years and still, I think, dominates many of our romantic fantasies is this idea that, okay, love is a very destabilizing force. How do we keep it alive? How do we ensure that people will marry and stay married? Ah, let's redefine love as a union of opposites. Uh, And so there is this kind of reassignment of gender uh, and uh, of qualities of, of life. Women are now told that they, yes, they're still supposed to obey, but they're supposed to obey out of love. And, and uh, there's, they are the ones who are in charge of making the emotional work of the family go. Uh, men, and of course this coincides with the development of wage labor outside the home, men are the ones now who support the family. This is the ideal of a male breadwinner. Very radical, new ideal, because men and women work together, uh, and everybody understood there was no such thing as a notion as a male breadwinner before the 19th century. Um, but now and, this and idea that partly, the man is the male breadwinner. And that's, Sorry, yeah. that's partly uh, about how people earned their livings. When you have an agricultural society, the farmer, husband, and wife work together. Right. And when you have, you know craftspeople and and little family businesses in the village, husband and wife work together. Exactly. When when the Industrial Revolution comes along, a lot changes. Yes. And, And with it, as I said, this new definition of men and women as completely opposite, and they have to marry and they have to stay married because a woman has access to protection and money only through a man and to knowledge of the outside world, and a man has access to child-rearing and emotion and love and virtue and the religious side of life only through a woman. And so you're supposed to fall in love with someone precisely because you don't understand them and they are completely different than you. And I think that contradiction still plagues us today. Yeah, that does make it pretty tough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, you look at, I I was recently at a romance um, novel conference, and so many of the romance novels are based upon this, I think, holdover from the 19th century. The idea is you fall in love with this this man, he's dangerous, he could hurt you, he is uh, someone who you just don't understand at all. He's, you often misinterpret his motives. He frightens you. But if you are loving enough, he will turn into your protector. That's right. You can tame him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're going to take another break now. 
And I'll be back talking with Stephanie Kuntz about love, marriage, and more after a couple of minutes. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions. Especially in cases of divorce, far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters, where we're talking about love, sex, marriage, and more. I'm Virginia Collin, and my guest is Stephanie Kuntz, who is the Director of Research and Public Education at the Council on Contemporary Families. She also teaches history and family studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. As we were wrapping up before the break, we weren't really wrapping up, but we were talking about changes that came in the 1600s, the 1700s. I think in the 1700s, sort of a tipping point came that we were discussing a little bit and yes. people started having this shocking idea that they should marry for love, not marry for wealth or for status. Right. Um, and I remember you saying in the book that this was, this is the point at which people started to think of marriage as a private relationship between the parties, not right. as a, not as a link in a larger system of political and economic alliances. Right, right, right. And, of course, women still had to marry for economic security, but now that was a private decision, not something that was driven by her family's needs, supposedly. I mean, supposedly, clearly, yes. there's some overlap. 
Right, right. So once upon a time, marital success was measured by financial settlements and the acquisition of useful in-laws and childbearing. And now there's a new standard for for a marriage to be a success. It has to be meeting the emotional needs of the family members. And the husband is... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say yes, but there's, as we were talking about in the last segment, a transitional stage where you move from the idea of um, meeting the family's needs to the idea of meeting the requirements of this um, very newly newly elaborated uh, sense of gender division of labor so that you get uh, for, for the first for the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, marriage increasingly becomes about uh, the man playing the male role and the woman playing the female role. And, of course, many many marriages went beyond that. But really, um, my experience and interviews with people who married in those days, you know, in the 1950s, uh, people married after uh, knowing each other on average for only six months. Um, that you married a gender stereotype. You know, you were looking for some something that that you couldn't be or do on your own, and so you got it in the other gender. And then, after that, we began to develop, and really only since the 1960s, I think, a sense that you had to meet all of each other's emotional needs. You had to be friends as well. Okay. Have I skipped over too many changes along the way, 1700s, 1800s? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think with the, the, the big one was the development of this ideal, uh, this idealized gender notion of marriage as the, uh, as the link between the male provider and protector and knowledgeable one and the female nurturer, uh, deferent, not subordinate, supposedly, just uh, deferring out of love because um, she, she was so loving and so in charge of emotions. And so that's really what takes us into the 50s and the 1960s. And then people start challenging that. Right. Okay. And prior to the 50s and 60s, there did come a time when somebody in some country passed a law that said it's no longer okay for husbands to beat their wives. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it took a very long time. That's early 1800s? Well, no. The... the, um, there, there was the first time that, that an American court ruled that it was not okay. Um, now, now let, me, let me just modify that a little bit. If there was excessive beating, even in colonial days or medieval times, uh, people would often intervene. Uh, and uh, the Puritans held men to account if they, if they beat too much. But a certain amount of, quote, correction was considered perfectly normal. Uh, it wasn't until the 1860s that the North Carolina court ruled that a man did not have the right to physically correct his wife. But in the next line of the ruling, the court said, but the ro- proper response is to draw the curtains and let the family work it out themselves. So that's hardly something that did much to counter domestic abuse. 
It wasn't until 1897 that the British High Court said that a man did not have the right to imprison another British citizen, even if she was his wife. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but until the 1970s, it wasn't until 1976 that the first state changed this, the legal definition of rape was forcible or violent intercourse with a woman other than the man's wife, because this was considered a normal prerogative. It was, so, nine, it was past 1970 when yes, it was. rape yep. inside marriage became illegal. That's right. That's right. That's why wow. I'm saying, you know, people are all the time, you know, we, we've got some real challenges in making modern, modern marriages work. But those challenges come from the fact that we have higher expectations and new expectations of marriage, uh, that it be fair, that it not be violent, that it's not something that you just put up with because the woman uh, needs a man to support her and the man needs a woman to, to you know, iron his shirt and uh, do the cooking. Uh, so it's not like we're doing marriage worse than our um, ancestors did. It's that we're trying to do something totally different from marriage. And your, your shock at the idea that it was not until the 70s that marital rape became a crime is a really good indication of how recent our ideals of marriage really are. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point in history did it become truly possible for a majority of families to be to fit what some people think is the traditional model that there's a male wed- breadwinner and the woman stays home and takes care of the house and raises the children well you put up a little quiz on your website uh, I did, that yes. we <laughs> talked about uh, what's the least traditional uh, form of marriage in history um, and the right answer to that is the male breadwinner marriage uh, throughout most of history, men and women worked together, as you said, on farms or small businesses. And even in the 18th and 19th century, as wage labor developed, most men could not support the family on the wages they earned, so the children went out uh, to work. It wasn't until the 1920s that a bare majority of American children grew up in homes where the wife was not involved in, uh, in the labor force uh, alongside the husband or, or uh, on the farm, uh, or they were not involved. So, but, so that's the, the first time in history that family form receded during the Depression and World War II, and then it came back in the 1950s. Uh, in the 1950s and 60s was the first time ever in the United States and a lot of Western Europe that you had uh, a majority of, a solid majority of kids being raised in families where the wife did not work uh, or outside the home. I mean, she obviously worked inside it, but did not work for pay. Uh, and the man could support the family on, on the wages he earned, even if, you know, somewhat modestly. Uh, that family form lasted for about 15 years. <laughs> uh, women began to re-enter the, the labor force um, by the late 50s and, um, of course, by the 70s. Um, the majority of families were two earners. Yeah. That is, it really is amazing to me that what most people in the United States think is the traditional family is something that didn't come into existence until approximately 1950 
and lasted only 15 years. Yes, it is. I mean, not, there are still some families that, that use that model to organize their family life. But oh, yeah. at that being the majority of marriages, it lasted only 15 years. Yeah, yeah. There are actually more single parent families than there are male breadwinner, female homemaker families today. Um, wow. They're still, you know, significant, but um, they, the fact is that, that, that in seven, 70% of American kids grow up in homes where every adult in the household is in the labor force, and this is something that our schools and work policies and leave policies uh, just have not really taken into account yet. Wow, that's a startling statistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, what changed since 1950? Um, I think in the beginning, the, you know, the husband's income was no longer sufficient to support everything the family felt like it needed, so women were working part-time while the kids were in school, in jobs that didn't pay as well as the husband's job, but they were in the workforce. Well, there were two trends in the 1950s, and remember that we had come out of the Depression and gone into to World War II, come out of the Depression um, in a, in, with a very different, because there was still a lot of sexism, a lot of discrimination against women, that unlike the last recession, where men see, did not get hostile to women joining the workforce, um, during the Depression when women had to work, there was a tremendous um, reaction against it and hostility toward female workers. Laws were passed saying that if a, if that, that two, uh, that women couldn't work in, in the industry if the man did, um, that married women couldn't have certain kind of jobs. Uh, and then in World War II, though, women entered the workforce uh, because the men were away and they got the experience of doing men's jobs at men's wages, and many of them really, really liked it. On the other hand, they also had to, had, had to postpone their families, their marriages, uh, first by the Depression, then by the war. Uh, and so after the war, there was this huge sort of sense of, oh, goodness, um, you know, let's, let's get our families started. Uh, not always just voluntarily. My mother worked in the shipyards in the 1940s and really loved it. And she was so angry that she was fired as soon as the uh, first boatload of GIs came home. Uh, okay, Stephanie, also- I'm going inter- to interrupt you because I just realized we've only got two or three minutes left. Uh, okay. And I'm, I've well, been fascinated I can make this one by what happened then. in the uh, What happened was 70s. that many women... <laughs> They found that they didn't like the 1950s domesticity. They'd had a taste of or they'd seen what other women could do. And then on top of that, uh, as there was increasing demand for female labor, other women entered the workforce. Um, by the 70s, you were seeing a decline in male wages so that it was very important for women to step in. And the result was from both ends, both from necessity and from choice, women entered the workforce, and they're here to stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the last couple of minutes, we might talk a little about the reproductive revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody invented a birth control pill, and life was never the same. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, the fact that uh, women 
wherever you see women get access to the pill, it, women have long wanted to control their fertility. Uh, and when they have that chance, you see them delaying childbearing more, spacing it, be able to space it, and that em- enables them to uh, get more of an education, to extend their work lives, to get more economic independence. And it also um, takes away the idea that in order to have sex, they have to get married. So it increases the incentive for both to delay marriage uh, and to to develop an independent life before marrying. So it's been a very important uh, factor, of course. Okay. So... Is there any way to summarize where we are now with all these conflicting trends and multiple generations who grew up with different understandings of what marriage is supposed to be? I think, and now I we've think got gay we marriage. We have to understand that we're too. in a good news, bad news scenario. The good news is that men, as well as women, are really changing their values. They're not only doing more housework and childcare; they're wanting to do more. Uh, their marriages are much more egalitarian than in the past. Domestic violence rates have have been halved since the 1960s. Um, so there's there's good news there. The bad news, though, is that we're living in an increasingly economically insecure and volatile uh, economy where people either have to work too long and do not have the work family support systems they need to invest in their family life, or they have too little work. And so there's this tremendous stress between the increased democratization of personal life and the increased inequality of economic life. And there's certainly the variety of family forms where now in many parts of the country, gay couples can marry, adoption agencies are willing to place children with gay parents, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, people choose to have children without getting married first, people divorce and then they form step families, so we just have a tremendous variety of family forms in the country now. and some of that, again, from real positive choices that people have. Some of it, though, from the economic stresses that make marriage uh, seem uh, seem more risky to low-income people and that make uh, marriage more unstable for them. Divorce rates have fallen for educated couples, but but for low-income couples, they have uh, been steady or even rising. Okay. I want to say thank you to you, Stephanie. My guest is Stephanie Kuntz, author of Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage. You can find her online at stephaniekuntz.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. We'll be right back. 